This episode of New Politics was released on the 29th of July, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajak people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, Peter Dutton has some questions to answer about a home affairs deal made with a corrupt businessman in 2018. The Treasurer Jim Chalmers introduces a wellbeing budget. And is a super profit tax the solution to all of our economic problems? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, abstract to the surreal. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription and you can also subscribe on Substack. But whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a T-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. He might be on holidays at the moment, but the leader of the opposition, Peter Dutton, is facing a lot of questions about what he knew about contracts that were made for offshore processing services in Nauru with a businessman who was convicted for corruption and making bribes to members of the Nauru government. And this goes back to the time when Peter Dutton was the Minister for Home Affairs, as well as being a senior member of the coalition government. The allegation is that the Australian Federal Police made a briefing to Peter Dutton about an investigation into Mozamil Bajani in 2018 for these corruption and bribery allegations, only for the Department of Home Affairs to enter into these contracts one month later with Bajani's company, Radiance International. Bajani was actually convicted of international bribery and corruption in 2020 and the company continued to be paid until May 2022. But it seems that Peter Dutton does need to answer a few questions about why the Australian government at the time continued to make contracts with a corrupt businessman. He's got questions to answer. He may well be very innocent. Things may look suspicious but aren't and that there's documents to show that He acted with the very best of intentions and the very highest of integrity. From this end of things, it doesn't look that way. I think, really, he should be called to stand down while there's an investigation. And if found innocent, reinstated. But if found guilty, further legal proceedings, whether charges or civil cases or what have you. If I was Peter Dutton, I would be presenting myself to the relevant authorities before the NACC gets to him because I suspect that won't be pleasant. He needs to be seen to be doing the right thing. The holidays may be a coincidence, but they were certainly convenient. I also think that if he's hoping that if he stays away for the two weeks of his holidays or whatever he's booked in for, it'll blow over. I don't think this will blow over. I think the public, for the most part, has had enough of these types of dodgy deals from the same side of parliament. And I think that things need to be explained quickly. He's got Suzanne Lay breathing down his neck, apparently, for the leadership. And there's a strong case to be made that he won't be leader of the party for much longer just because he hasn't been able to gain a vote. No one has said, I voted for Anthony Albanese, but now I'm going to vote for Peter Dutton. There's a lot of people, before you all start yelling at the speakers, who have been disappointed in the Labor government. 
but no one has said they're going to swap their vote to Liberal. They're going to swap it to Independent or to Green or to wherever, but the Liberal Party aren't picking up these votes. Now, how much of that is Peter Dutton's fault and how much of that is other aspects is another discussion to be had at another time. But certainly as leader of the party, he's going to cop a fair bit of the blame. And if he's been found to be guilty of these very, very serious allegations, his position is untenable. And it's untenable anyway. Oh, well, that's right. This might be the issue that seals the deal for Peter Dutton. And a lot of people are saying, well, there's no evidence that Peter Dutton signed this contract, but that's not how the system operates. And you can't expect ministers to be signing these types of contracts anyway. But there is ministerial responsibility. And you'd think that if a minister was informed about an allegation that someone the federal government was in a contract with and just about to sign a new contract they were going to be investigated over corruption and bribery, which was later proved in a court of law, well, that to me rings a few alarm bells. And the contracts continued for two years after Bajani was found guilty. So at the very, 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 very least, answers do need to be provided by Peter Dunn for why this actually happened. And Senator Michaela Cash, she's tried to spread the blame here by suggesting that these contracts continued when the Labor government came into office in May 2022, and that is actually correct. The contract expired on the 30th of June this year, but the Department of Home Affairs was a complete mess when Labor took over, and it would have been hard to establish what was going on in that office. And some people that we've spoken to inside the Office of Home Affairs have said that the worst thing ever was the amalgamation of all of those different departments, immigration, border force, federal police, ASIO, and putting it all into one department headed by someone like Peter Dutton. Home affairs was too unwieldy. It combined a number of different poorly run departments into one super poorly run department, and any other minister might have been able to pull it off, but not Peter Dutton. And the Department of Home Affairs was created in 2017 and was mainly given to Peter Dutton to keep him busy and keep him quiet so he wouldn't challenge Malcolm Turnbull as Prime Minister and didn't work out that way. Peter Dutton did challenge Malcolm Turnbull for the leadership in 2018, but Peter Dutton has always been about Peter Dutton and his leadership ambitions. And the Department of Home Affairs was a massive mess that he left behind and that was something that had to be cleaned up by someone else. The Australian Customs was one of the best customs services in the world. Then they change them, give them black uniforms, allow them to act like thugs and call it border force. Very quickly redubbed in public discourse to border farce. Didn't affect the rate of smuggling, of illegal entry, didn't stop much crime, didn't stop the stuff it was supposed to stop, just made Australia look like a wannabe Trumpist America. And this is not to disparage the good people working for it who got caught up in the changes. This is all to do with what happened at the top. Dutton's stereotypical Queensland police mentality has never left him. And so it's all about uniforms and making sure that you are the alpha and making sure that it's tough, whereas, of course, it's just laughable. It's the type of thing that Mel Brooks, would, in his heyday, would have made a wonderful movie about if he'd been Australian. And Peter Dutton might have been told about all of this information about bribery and corruption and just didn't listen. He might have said, oh, well, whatever, no need to tell me what I don't already know and I'm too busy, I want to be Prime Minister one day, don't you know? But that role between the Australian Federal Police, Home Affairs and Conservative politicians does need to be investigated and the Australian Greens have called for a 
Royal Commission into this, not just on this particular issue, but everything to do with immigration detention and treatment of asylum seekers. And there was so much money being spent on these processes and so much money going out of the country. It was almost like a form of foreign aid to Nauru and Papua New Guinea. But the issue was that there were so few checks and balances and the coalition had this understanding that their supporters in the electorate didn't really care how much money was being spent on keeping asylum seekers out of the country or how much money was being wasted. As long as the system was cruel and kept asylum seekers away, they seemed to be pretty happy with that. And the coalition also seemed to specialise in all of these corrupt processes. Some of these contracts were kept a secret. $17 million contract with Radiance International, that was not made public. And then there was that $8 company, Canstruct, and that ended up with $1.6 billion worth of contracts. $423 million to Paladin, that was the company registered in a shack on Kangaroo Island. And these companies had little or no experience in the field, had little or no corporate structure, yet they were handed these large contracts. They were aided by, of course, a compliant media that didn't do enough in chasing this up. That's not to disparage the work of those journalists and editors who did chase it up and publish it, but it should have been front-page news for weeks and weeks and weeks, and heads should have rolled. The whole Paladin thing was just a disgraceful... And the first thing is, oh, they all do it. Well, if they all do it, then they all should go down. And if they all do it, where was the press there? Canstruct was just Paladin redone. And the fact that we allowed this stuff, our grandchildren are just going to shake their heads, I hope. I hope they're not going to say, oh, it's perfectly normal behaviour and it was the right thing to do. But I'm hoping that they will just shake their heads and say, how did you jokers allow this to happen? I'm hoping that Labor has the fortitude to bring through sweeping reforms on how tenders are done. And it will take more than one election cycle to do it. These things can't change overnight loopholes have to be closed. The responsible have to be found and removed from office and new people brought in with a new mindset. We don't want a corporate mindset. That's been the problem. We want a public service mindset, not a corporate, we do what the minister tells us because that's what the minister has told us to do type thing. The NACC, I think, is going to be busy for a decade on this stuff. They were so destructive and so, so awful. It's probably going to take that long. On the other issue is that these entities also had strong connections with the Liberal Party and a lot of people on the ground in Nauru and Manus Island in Papua New Guinea, they just couldn't see what this money was being spent on and conditions were poor. Everything about this setup in both of these countries was rickety and poorly constructed and understaffed. So the question has to be, well, where did all of this money go? And a recent parliamentary inquiry was told about how the Synergy 360 lobbying firm proposed a structure that would have allowed the former coalition minister, Stuart Robert, to profit from government contracts. And Stuart Robert has denied this, but this is exactly what we'd expect him to say in these circumstances. Now, this was alleged under parliamentary privilege, so it hasn't actually been tested anywhere in a court of law. But generally, people in parliamentary committees don't make these sort of allegations unless there's some substance to them. So that's one allegation. But were there any other structures created for Canstruck or for Paladin or for Radiance International? Some kind of structures that 
could have benefited Peter Dutton financially, members of the Australian Federal Police, other coalition ministers? Was there some kind of slush fund for senior coalition MPs? So it seems that all of this is starting to unravel as more information is starting to come out about all of these contracts relating to offshore immigration detention. And at least it provides some answers about why the coalition dragged its feet on the National Anti-Corruption Commission for almost four years. It does provide some answers, but I think there's many more questions that still need to be answered. It was obvious to all of us why they didn't want it, but the audacity of it is what is surprising. It wasn't the odd 100,000 accidentally resting in someone's account. It's millions and millions and millions of dollars. And obviously, too, had they built state-of-the-art facilities on... Nauru and housed more than a handful of people and then they were skimming off the top, it might have been harder to find. I don't know how long they thought they'd get away with this because governments change. It is inevitable that one day you will not be in power anymore. It might take 23 years, which is the record in Australia, but it's going to happen that the other side will get in and then the misdeeds and the the malfeasance and the corruption comes to light. And there's not many places to hide. Stuart Roberts' business friend has apparently severed all ties with Australia. I don't know quite how you do that from a man in his position. I suspect that it's not going to end well for him. It's not going to end well for Stuart Robert. And it's not going to end well for Peter Dutton, ultimately, because he will be seen to be responsible. Even if, as I said earlier, it turns out that he acted with the utmost integrity and honesty and best of intentions and stopped laughing. (laughs) But... He's still the minister responsible and no one else will take the blame. And the Australian Greens have been calling for a royal commission into this and I think that a carefully calibrated commission can find all the answers, provide information that's in the public interest and provide a political benefit to the government of the day without the need to play politics, which is exactly what we ended up getting with the royal commission into the robo-debt scheme. And All of the fallout from the robo-debt scheme will linger for some time to come, but during the week, someone at long last had some consequences for their role in the robo-debt scheme, and that's when the most senior public servant responsible for the scheme, Catherine Campbell, resigned. Now, it would have been better if she had a more ignominious end to her career, but they're the rules of the public service, so she's gone, but I'm sure that there will be consequences for more people in the coalition and in the public service who manage the robo-debt scheme. I get the sense that they're trying to scapegoat as many as they can so that everyone else involved will get away with it. I'm going to suggest that Scott Morrison will heavily imply that now Catherine Campbell's gone, he has no nothing more to do with it. Of course, he is probably more responsible than Catherine Campbell, but again, he's not the only one. That Tudge and Robert and Christian Porter have so far got away with it, I'm not sure is justice done and completely seen to be done. But it's not over yet, and I'm wondering if the Royal Commission was waiting for the NACC to come in so it could assert its authority too. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music. Or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now support New Politics through Substack and Patreon.
Jim Chalmers has announced the first wellbeing budget and officially it's known as the Measuring What Matters National Wellbeing Framework and this to me makes a lot of sense. Measuring up the national finances in a budget always needs to have a relevance to the social wellbeing of the community. Budgets can't just be based around numbers and simple abstract concepts like budget surplus or budget deficit. It's dealing with real people. Financial decisions that governments make have a real world effect on the people that make up an economy and this is well overdue. But there have been critics of the wellbeing budget, the usual suspects, news corporations, Sky News, pretty much everyone in the conservative media who were looking for tiny flaws in the report and then magnifying these issues because essentially they've got nothing else to argue against. The national wellbeing framework is something that can draw all parts of government activity into the one measuring tool, and this is something that should be encouraged, not ridiculed. They say an economist is the person who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. I know that's not true of all economists, but pushing everything onto the monetary value of the government has given us 40 years of disaster, probably longer really. The change starts with Fraser, although it's uh, driven through by Hawke and Keating and then cemented in by Howard. The Menzies government, and it's always saw the economy as one of the tools government had to improve Australian well-being and the Australian national interest. For the most part, the Menzies government valued education, valued social ties, valued a form of community, as did Holt, Gorton, Whitlam, and as I said, to a lesser extent, Fraser. So having a well-being budget is, I think, a really important thing because, okay, we might be running a, a surplus, but at what social cost does that surplus come from? I, I think that it needs to be pushed a bit more. There's been a bit of sneering from our inadequate media. How can you measure this stuff? Social scientists have been measuring this stuff for decades. So to have the government take notice of it is something I think is, is a good thing. And it'd be interesting to see how it develops over the next couple of years. Of course, when the Liberal Party get back in, first thing they'll do is dump it, I think, even though it's something that they should keep. Well, that might be some point in the far away distance, but the wellbeing budget or wellbeing framework, that looks at 50 different key indicators, including life expectancy, job satisfaction, health outcomes, mental health, environmental issues, financial stress, safety. And there's already a range of countries that are using wellbeing budgets to create a better understanding of what all of this financial information means when it's applied to spending on the community. And that includes Scotland, New Zealand, Finland, Wales, Germany, Iceland, Canada, and in those countries, it's an uncontroversial issue. Why not try and find out how the money that's being spent by a government is affecting the people that that money is being spent on? And is it having the right effect? Is it money well spent? Are there better ways to spend this money? And to me, this sounds like a very good idea. But of course, if it's not controversial, controversy has to be found somewhere. Here's former Treasurer Josh Frydenberg rubbishing the idea back in 2019. Approaches. Are there any alternative approaches? Well, we know those opposite prefer well-being budgets to balanced budgets, Mr. Speaker. And they are led, they are inspired, 
They are inspired by their spiritual leader, that member for Rankin, Mr Speaker. The member for Rankin, Mr Speaker. And I was thinking yesterday, I was thinking yesterday, as the member for Rankin was coming into the chamber, fresh from his ashram, deep in the, uh, deep in the mountains of the Himalayas, barefoot into the chamber, but robes flowing, incense burning, beads in one hand, well-being budget in the other. I thought to myself, what would the yoga position that the member for Rankin would assume? The Treasurer will resume his seat. And he was such a successful treasurer that he lost the seat of Kuyong and he's no longer in parliament. And didn't get a budget passed either. And if the media is after expert advice on a wellbeing budget, well, who do you go to? Barnaby Joyce, of course, who's got opinions on everything but expertise on nothing. The Treasurer has been busy. Um, he's got, um, he's suffering a little bit of a setback this morning, though. He's, he's long awaited. I mean, I'm not sure who's been waiting for this, but the wellbeing report due to be handed down today. That's right, a wellbeing report with large parts of it relying on out-of-date data. Barnaby, parts of this report relying on data from 2017. The wellbeing report. Off you go. Mate, I don't know how well I'm being, but it's not too well. In this net satisfaction rating, what is this about? It, <laughs> It sounds like something you get from a kumbaya session. I mean, this, this whole idea, this whole idea of net sat... I'll tell you, he's not feeling satisfied, Treasurer. The, the pensioner who can't pay their power bill, mm. the person who's changing what they have to put in their grocery because they don't... in their shopping trolley because mm. they just don't have the do dough mm. anymore. Uh, the person who can't afford to make their house payments. I don't think they're feeling net satisfied plus. Mm. I think they're feeling net satisfied minus. It, it, and, mate, I'll give you another tip. Mm. We've, we've gone metric, so get rid of your imperial data and go metric. And this just continues the foolishness of the media. They criticise the things that they don't understand and not that the idea of a wellbeing budget is too complex to understand, but... If they need to find out something about it, well, let's go and speak to an idiot about it who knows nothing about it. They focus on Susan Lay, who criticised the framework because it used some data that was a few years old, even though it was the most recent data available. Barnaby Joyce says the framework is completely useless, so that's what the media reports, mainly because it's the negative narrative that they want to keep pushing against the Labor government. So... They're all against the idea of the well-being budget, which essentially means that they're against the idea of the well-being of the community and the general public. And if we ever needed any evidence of this, we just need to look at the behaviour of the coalition government between 2013 and 2022. And it's pretty obvious that they're not concerned about the well-being of the community. They're more concerned about themselves and their own vested interests. Given how their budgets were received, you can understand why they wouldn't want this. The Joe Hockey budget that nearly wrecked the economy, except it was stopped and never passed. The various Scott Morrison budgets, which were wrecked by the economy, and then the Josh Frydenberg budgets, which were all about cut, 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 but weren't finally passed. You can absolutely tell why <laughs> they don't want this, because when you look at what are the social and cultural and political effects of these budgets rather than just the economic effects? And their economic effects weren't great anyway. You can see why it's one less level of scrutiny that they don't come out of well. And then you think, well, what's the point of an opposition if all they do is oppose and frustrate and contribute nothing at all 
to the public debate. And when I say nothing, I actually mean nothing. There's nothing that they contribute to the public debate. And Australia is really at a crossroads when it comes to reform, and that's across the board as well, political reform, economic reform, environmental reform, social reform. And we've just had these Luddites finish up in office and they want to come back for more. And we've said this many times before, COVID is still with us and the effects of the pandemic have provided an opportunity for governments to implement new ways of thinking to resolve problems that exist in the community. And all we get from the coalition is this lame-brained opposition, anti-intellectualism, and this is where the idiot becomes king. But we've already had those years, the Morrison years, Trump in the US, Boris Johnson in the UK. That style of politics just does not work. It doesn't fix anything. And I just find it very frustrating that the mainstream media just wants to listen to the old way of thinking, the old conservative way. And sure, we've discussed many times before on New Politics how the mainstream media is nowhere near as influential as it used to be in forming and shaping political opinion in the electorate, but it does become very frustrating. They've got to find a heart. They've got to find a soul. They've got to find a purpose. And the purpose should be more than getting into government and making sure Labor doesn't get in. And again, those governments I mentioned before, for the most part, had those. Now we don't have to agree with them at all. We vote against them. But at least if they have a purpose, it makes it easier for all of Australia to support them, if that makes sense, even when you oppose them. And probably a good deal of the Labor Party too should just get out of public life and go and find a soul and a heart and a purpose. And one of the leading economists looking at reforming economies to work in the interests of people is Professor Mariana Mazzucato, and we've mentioned her before on New Politics, and it's a type of economics that Treasurer Jim Chalmers is influenced by and interested in, and and that's new type of economic thinking that accepts nuance, looks at all the human factors and not just the hard statistics and balance sheets. Here's Professor Mazzucato discussing the relationship between health and the economy. We have to increase the finance. We have been starving global health systems. However, we have to do it in new terms. And so we can't just you know, continue to put in vast amounts of money without actually questioning what has gone wrong and how can we improve it. First, we argue that we need to you know, stop saying that there's no money, <laughs> right? We need to actually create the fiscal space for health for all. And we can't do it when it's too late. Money has come out of the woodwork during COVID-19, but it's too late if we are not continuously investing in all those very important areas that then lead to the mission of Health for All. Second, we need to direct investments towards Health for All. To reorient economic activities around health, we need to forge symbiotic public-private relationships. We need business, we need public actors, we need philanthropies, but they need to work together in a different way. And third and lastly, we say that we need to govern public and private finance for health for all. We have to constantly remind ourselves that more money is important, but it's not enough if we are to change the underlying economic thinking policies and inequalities that keep getting us from one crisis to another. And if the media is a little bit too racist or sexist to listen to an Italian woman economist based in America, here's another Italian that they might like to listen to. A wellbeing economy approach, you know, fundamentally means three things. First of all, we think about tomorrow when we're planning and implementing today. So what does that mean? It means that, you know, the, the world we live on is the only world we have. We fundamentally don't own 
uh, this, this space. We don't own this world. We're stewards of it for a period and then we hand it on to future generations. And we need to think that way when we design our economies, when we set priorities for government, um, and when we design the systems that you know, re result in health and wellbeing for populations. So it's about thinking about tomorrow's populations when we're planning and implementing today. The second is making sure that we give equal value to social, health and environmental markers of success and not simply continue to focus on economic parameters like gross domestic product or GDP, you know, when we're measuring success as a society. If you think about what is really important to you and your family, yes, you need a certain amount of money to be safe, to be able to feed yourself, to be able to put a roof over your head. But actually what's important to most people is more than just continuing to amass more and more money. It's about enjoying good health. It's about being safe, it's about being connected, and it's about knowing that future generations can enjoy a better quality of life, if not the same quality of life that we all do. And the third thing that we really would need to see within an intergenerational wellbeing economy approach is an equal focus and prioritisation in government and in government spending and, and um, uh, priority setting around things like housing, uh, education, um, social and, and employment issues, and of course, preventative health. We need a robust, world-class healthcare system, but we also need to make sure that people are not just being made well when they're sick, but kept well throughout life. And that was Dr. Sandro DeMeo outlining the benefits of a wellbeing budget. And there's really not that much to disagree with here. These are the people that the media should be listening to and getting onto their programs to discuss these ideas, not a deputy leader of the Liberal Party who's on the verge of losing her pre-selection and probably won't be around after the next election. They shouldn't listen to someone like Barnaby Joyce who is only there to score political points and appeal to the most base instincts that people have got. The Liberal Party and the National Party, they represent old thinking, old money. They can talk about nothing and oppose everything in sight, but the world has moved on and I think it's time for them to be moved on as well. Yeah, I do get sick of... The government's announced this new policy. Let's talk to the shadow minister before we know what the new policy is. And then the shadow minister doesn't come out with anything constructive or productive, just, oh, it's terrible and we're going to vote against it. Okay, why? Oh, because we should be in government is the reason that they don't want a state, but is what they're saying all the time. The world has moved on, new economic thinking, but this notion that the economy is merely a tool to improve the life of someone and really should it improve the life of everyone or should it improve the life of a few now we've had 40 years of economy improving the lives of a few it's probably time to turn that around so that it uh, improves the life of as many people as it possibly can and if that means taking away a little bit of what those have at the top to give more to those on the bottom i don't think anyone with reasonable ethics and a reasonable amount of compassion would disagree with that i don't think any of this new economic thinking is about taking it all away from the wealthy just adjusting things slightly so that there's a bit more of an even distribution but you'll always get people who won't like that and sometimes there'll be people with not much thinking that they will somehow miss out when they finally hit the big time. One of the big lies of capitalism is that you will become rich if you work hard and that being wealthy is open to you. 
Now, for those who've managed to come from nowhere and do something, that's wonderful and that's fantastic. But it doesn't happen to everyone. And it's one of the great lies of capitalism that it will happen to whomever does strive. And of course, it comes out of Weber's notion of the Protestant work ethic, that Protestants believe that God will reward you for hard work. And that's why you work hard, even though that's not the case at all. Hard work is good, don't get me wrong. But it alone doesn't lead to wealth and comfort. This is New Politics, one of the top 10 Australian politics and news commentary audio programs. You can listen to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon Music, and you can find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can contribute and support New Politics on Substack and Patreon. And if you ever want any serious work done on anything, it's always best to bring in the union. And this week it was the CFMEU that announced a campaign for a tax on super profits to fund public and affordable housing right across Australia. The Secretary of the CFMEU, Zach Smith, he spoke at the National Press Club this week and announced that a permanent 40% tax on excess profits would raise $29 billion per year and this would be used to build an additional 53,000 new homes each year and work towards the estimated shortfall of 750,000 homes by the year 2041. That's just 18 years away. And if we look at the Labor government's housing proposal, it's to create an investment fund of $10 billion, which will then generate $500 million towards building around 3,000 new homes per year. And it's so small that it's embarrassing, but the ideas floating around by the CFMEU, these are the sort of ideas that should be coming from a Labor government. These are the big ideas that we normally expect, but we're just not getting much of at the moment. Labor did create the resource super profit tax in 2012, and that was based on a recommendation from the Henry Tax Review, but it was so watered down and close to useless, it only raised $200 million, and it was a classic case of politics interfering with what could have been very good public policy, and it caused the Labor government at the time so many political problems. Bill Shorten has already ruled out having a look at a super profit tax and no doubt the media and the coalition will ramp up their attacks on a super profits tax whether it exists or not but it could be good policy and it could raise a lot of revenue that could be used on so many projects that could benefit the public as well. It goes back to our last. What is the point of an economy if it's not benefiting most people? Now they'll say oh if people, you know, if, if you charge these companies super profit tax, they won't make super profits, but they'll still make profits. And if they go over and they're paying that much tax, then they're really paying back the opportunity they've had to be wildly successful. And again, the, the tax regime is structured fairly that this is an income tax. You don't pay 45% on every dollar you made. You pay 45% over whatever the top rate is. On up, that's where you pay the 45%. You're only paying 30% and down 
to the dollars you make then. So you're not losing all of it. If you're making so much money that you're being charged extra in tax, you should be happy. Maybe not to pay the tax, but that you, you've made that much money. It's not like George Harrison complained in the song Tax Man, that's one for me, 19 for you, which again was only on over a certain amount. George still managed to live in a castle somehow, for example. It's a real fear of sharing with those beneath, isn't it? We've made all this and we did it without anyone's help, which is wrong. Rupert Murdoch years ago made the argument he shouldn't pay tax at all because all these workers paid tax, which is the most bizarre and selfish and stupid thing I think I'd ever heard. And from there, I've really wondered if Murdoch is as smart as his reputation suggests. And really, arguments against one-off super profit taxes, particularly from mining companies who are only leasing Commonwealth land and digging up Commonwealth resources. This is all in the constitution. Why should they get all of it? They should get some of it. Sure, they've invested and taken the risk and done the work. I'm not saying they shouldn't get money for it, but they shouldn't get all of it because it's ultimately the Commonwealth, common wealth of Australia's. So it's a good policy. I don't think the government will have the political will to do it. I think Bill Shorten probably said the quiet bit out loud, as the kids say, but they really should think about it. I think that it's good that the unions have come out and made these statements, and we have to remember that unions don't have direct political responsibilities. They've got a responsibility to their membership, of course, but a government does have political responsibilities. So we do have to take all of this into account. But I'd say that what the CFMEU is suggesting would have great popular support within the community. But the captains of industry in Australia, well, they'll probably shoot it down at the first available opportunity, remembering that it's not the people of Australia, it's not the federal, state and territory governments that control Australia, it's the corporations that control Australia. And I hope that I'm not sounding like a mad raving socialist, but that's actually the case. And Sorry, I've just gone to put my tinfoil hat on. But corporate Australia has got too much clout in Australia. They knocked down the super profit tax. They knocked down the carbon pricing system. Rupert Murdoch, Gina Reinhart, Andrew Forrest, Kerry Stokes, just to name a few, whatever they ask for from the government, they pretty much get. And if they don't like it, they attack the government of the day. And it's not just the Labor Party that they attack. In 2017, the WA National Party, they proposed lifting the royalty rate of iron ore from $0.05 cents per tonne, and that's a rate that's been fixed since 1967, up to $5 per tonne. And that's still not very much. But the mining industry targeted the leader of the WA National Party, Brendan Grills, and he lost a previously safe seat, and the WA coalition also lost that election. It wasn't the only reason, but that did contribute to their electoral loss. And this was also sending out a message to other political leaders. And this is exactly how the mafia behaves. If you cross our paths and try to take some of our money, even though, as you mentioned, David, these resources belong to the Commonwealth of Australia and all the people of Australia, well, you'll get whacked politically speaking, of course. So this is what they did to the WA National Party. They did it to Kevin Rudd and the Labor government in 2010. And Australia is a bit of a cowboy country and like the Wild West when it comes to these corporate issues. But to me, it's just very difficult to see how this can change in the short term. It's going to take massive reform. It's going to take a, a clean out of corporate life which they're not going to be keen to do because, one, it's private and as long as they're making profits, etc. 
but I think it will come to the point where it's going to hit them in the, the back pocket or the hip pocket. People are stopping shopping at the big places. Harvey Norman, for example, which was unassailable at one point, has lost money over the last few years. The point that Andrew Forrest made more money during the pandemic when he couldn't have been doing any more work. And it's this myth of hard work alone. Ask any sweatshop worker what hard work has got them. Ask any person working three jobs just trying to make ends meet what hard work is doing. How much of that is due to hard work and how much of it is due to the the opportunity that that person has got. And when you've passed, say, 40, those opportunities start to dry up anyway. So you're stuck working three jobs and where you're barely making it. So we've got to get rid of the notion that Twiggy Forrest and Gina Reinhardt and Jerry Harvey work harder than anybody else. They may work a bit smarter, sure, but they're also buoyed by opportunity that were denied to other people, whether fairly or unfairly is not a debate for now, but also a little bit of luck and social standing. A super profits tax is probably the first place provided the money is invested in education opportunities, health supply, the stuff that improves Australians' lives, you know, maybe even into a, a universal basic income, to just take the stress of people having to worry about paying the next bill, whereas they know that so much of the bills are paid, they can go and do meaningful and productive work or be happy in less meaningful work and not have to worry too much about it. We're built upside down and we've got to stop. We've got to turn it around the right way that the few are helping the many rather than many are helping the few. And again, it's not about destroying wealth or what have you. It's just taking little bits off the top to give more to the bottom. And the idea of super profits tax is not new and it's not unusual. The governments of Qatar and Norway have large levies on resource production and generate 500 times more revenue than Australia does in certain resources. And both of those countries have got a large sovereign wealth fund. Greece, Romania, Hungary, Italy, Spain, the UK, Germany and France, they've also got a similar tax and they refer to these as exceptional taxes. So maybe a rebranding of the name of super tax could also make a difference. But Australia could solve so many of its financial, environmental and social problems if they address these factors and made these larger corporations pay their fair share of tax, or in some cases just make them pay some tax. But we don't have the political leaders who are courageous enough to take this issue on. We've got union leaders who are very happy to bring up these issues. And as we've mentioned before, it's easier if you bring this up if you don't have those political responsibilities if these proposals are implemented. But it's a big issue that just does need to be addressed. And You mentioned this before, David. In the first year of the COVID pandemic in 2020, Andrew Forrest's net value went up by $15 billion. Gina Reinhart's went up by a similar amount as well. And if we had a 40% super profit tax, well, that would raise up to $10 billion. And that's just from these two companies, Fortescue Metals and Hancock Prospecting. And the critics of a super profit tax argue that it's a deterrent against investment and punishes hard work, as you mentioned before. But How much harder did Andrew Forrest really work in 2020 to generate an Mm. extra $15 billion of wealth? Or Gina Reinhart, how much harder did they work in those years or in that year, in 2020, when compared to 
previous years. So I agree with you, David. This is a lot of this is a fair fee, but a super profit tax would only affect around 0.3% of businesses in Australia. And if it was created effectively and efficiently without any political interference from the corporate world, well, it could be an effective tax and raise substantial levels of revenue well into the future. And if the government is serious about reforming the economy and looking at better ways of raising revenue, I think this is a good place to look. It's a simple solution but difficult to achieve politically and Australia along with the US seems to be the home of the scare campaign the Labor government is probably thinking about its experiences from 2012 where it tried to do something that could be of great benefit to the public and the community and introduce a super profit tax on the mining industry only for that to be turned into a weapon by the mining industry and the Liberal Party and used against it and it was one of the big reasons for why Labor lost office in 2013 and as we discussed previously about the wellbeing budget the Liberal Party isn't interested in providing a great benefit to the public and to the community it's only interested in itself so Unfortunately, I think the Labor government of 2023 lacks that sort of courage needed to implement this sort of policy. And I'd say that we won't be seeing a super profit tax anytime soon, but we do need it, but it's just not going to happen. I would love to be able to say, look, they've done it and they've done it fairly and they've done it in such a way that it works. But I think it will just go into the back burner and someone will write about it in 20 years as another great missed opportunity. I hope I'm wrong. I hope that they say, no, we've thought about this and this is how we're going to do it and we're going to make it fair to everyone, blah, blah. But they're not going to do it. They need to reform the tax office by the looks of things and look at getting rid of a lot of the consultancies that have corrupted tax. And that may be the bigger priority. And then when that's done and you know that you've got a fair and open tax office, then you can maybe start reforming the tax regime itself. But I suspect none of this is going to happen. As one of our Patreon listeners pointed out, we didn't mention just how much the big consulting firms donate to both parties. And that's something that does bear mentioning. And this will slow reform while, while this type of model is, is in because the, the model as it is advantages too many people who probably shouldn't be advantaged. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.